broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to We've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. Hello, Las Vegas. Happy Monday, everyone. Friddle is back. I know you missed me. You probably cried yourselves to sleep all last week while I was gone. Played some reruns, though. Hopefully you enjoyed those. No worries, though. I have returned. No need to cry anymore. Everything is good. You're listening to The Frittle Show on KVXL 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio. Coming to you live from Studio B at Liberty Baptist Church. We're on Rainbow and Lake Mead Boulevard. If you'd like to join us, our next service is Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. We'd love to have you here. If you would like to be part of the show, if you have questions, if you have story ideas, if you have anything at all you'd like to share with us, you can email radio at experienceliberty.com or call us at 702 647 Four five two two, and we'd love to talk to you. Or if you'd like to talk to me without having to, you know, go through anybody else or email, you can tweet because I'm on Twitter at the Frittle, and you can find me uh, there. Vacation was fantastic. I love vacation, but not because you're not working. What makes vacation awesome for me is the people that you spend it with. And, well, before I get into all that, thanks to all of you that actually, you know, that that listen to this show. I was a very, very, very quiet child. Never would anyone have told you that someday Crystal would be talking on the radio. That was just not in my future. If you had had a crystal ball, you know, no pun intended. Because I had, you know, soccer balls and baseballs and stuff. Anyway. I appreciate you guys listening, because if you didn't listen, there wouldn't be a show. And that would just be sad for everyone. So thank you for listening. So I went on vacation, and it's crazy because I purposefully don't take a computer with me when I go on vacation now. I used to. I don't anymore. I'll take my phone, but that's it, as far as devices that connect me to the outside world go. And I try to only check my phone when I wake up, maybe around lunchtime, and when I go to bed. It doesn't always happen that way, but that's what I try to do. Because I can see the news, Facebook, Twitter, I can see all that every other day. And now that I live in Vegas, I only see my entire family together for maybe four days twice a year. Which is still really good, um, considering that that it's hard to get a family of my size all together in the same place ever. But, you know, there just isn't time for keeping up with the news if, if you only get four days. You know what I'm saying? Like, with everybody all there, you just enjoy the moment and live in the moment don't have to capture every moment for Instagram or Snapchat because sometimes in capturing the moment you actually you miss the moment but anyhow that said when I would check my phone I'd see different stories and I'd be like oh I can talk about that I can talk about that and then I'd forget which ones they were so yesterday I'm trying to do some show prep for today and I was so frustrated because there were so many things that happened last week that I really wanted to touch on and I've forgotten at least half of them <laughs> so you know apologies but I was not uh, into the news a whole lot last week, so this isn't going to be as much of a news hour as much as I'll do more commentary this hour because I'm still getting back into 
looking at what actually is going on in the world since I was on vacation. But we are going to talk about that gorilla. But uh, before we get there, I want to talk a little bit more about about something I was thinking about on vacation. And I don't know if it's if it's this election season or if it's being on vacation or if it's a combination of both. But with all the talk of, of making our country great again and, and then, you know, I'm sitting on the beach and I'm thinking about this and I'm like, you know, life in America is very exceptionally, incredibly good. And for me, there's absolutely nothing more relaxing than sitting on a beach, running the sand through my fingers, soaking up sun and listening to the birds and the waves. That to me is the best sound on earth. That's my favorite place. Is the beach. But not any beach. East Coast beaches, by the way, very different than West Coast beaches. I'm I'm definitely more and probably because I grew up there, of an East Coast beach person. But anyway, not once was I sitting on the beach thinking about if I need to be worried that invaders might, you know, pop up and start storming the beachhead, or if someone was going to bomb us, or if I had enough money to go buy dinner, or if there was clean water to drink when I got home, or if I'd even have electricity to turn on when I got back to the house. I didn't think about any of that. It wasn't even, it didn't even enter my brain. Because I live in America. And I think it's easy sometimes to forget how blessed we are. It's easy to look at everything terrible that's happening in the world and forget that I can turn a spigot and have clean, drinkable water in a matter of of less than a second. And I can make it hot or cold. And I have indoor plumbing. And I have Walmart. And it's just so easy to forget how good and blessed life is here in the United States. You know, think about this for a minute. We have poor people in America who are overweight. I mean, think about it. That that doesn't happen in other places around the world. And then we have people that complain about pesticides and hormones that are used in our foods. And, and to a good degree, that complaint is, is merited. But at the same time, it's often those very pesticides and GMOs and hormones, which are the reason... We as Americans have so much food and why it's so inexpensively available. Now, you can argue about whether or not that's even a good thing because we're killing ourselves with these pesticides and hormones and on and on. But you can't deny that the farmers spraying their corn with pesticides are producing more corn for you to eat. I work with a group called the Fatherless Cry that ministers to orphans in Africa. And you know what they eat? They eat one bowl of rice and possibly a piece of chicken every day. And that's it. Why? Because they can't afford more. Not only are they are they paid less and money is harder to come by, but food in Sierra Leone is not available in the abundant degree that it is in the United States. I mean, really, if you know what you're doing, you can spend $2 at Taco Bell or McDonald's and get a very filling meal. It may not be the most nutritious thing you've ever eaten, but it'll fill you up. And if you're even better, you can get more food than that at Walmart to last you longer. But that's because we live in the United States. I mean, these kids in Africa and all around the world, their bellies aren't full. And many of them will never experience a full belly in their entire lives. I mean, a day where they're not actually hungry to some degree. Now, if you make 
$32,400, you are among the wealthiest 1% of humans to ever have existed on the planet. Not the wealthiest 1% right now, but the wealthiest 1% of humans in the history of all recorded time. The poverty level in the United States for a family of four is $24,250. That is still six times higher than the poverty level globally and still places you among the 17% most wealthiest people currently on the planet. I mean, if you want to have a really fun but, you know, convicting exercise, you can go to givingwhatwecan.org. It's givingwhatwecan.org. Scroll down to their How Rich Am I calculator Put in your income and family uh, family size, and they'll tell you where you rank globally wealth-wise. And they'll also tell you where you would still rank globally if you gave 10% of your income to charity. And seriously, you should try it. It's it's a real eye-opener. Givingwhatwecan.org. Anytime I'm tempted to complain about, you know, financial stuff, I just go over there and, and remind myself that I'm really incredibly blessed in the grand perspective of what's happening in the world. I mean, we're, we're, we're people rioting for free college and demanding more from our government when we're already the richest people on the planet. I mean, we are so blessed and we don't even realize what we have. I mean, what if we started saying thank you more than we complained? What if we were actually content? What if we realized that God has blessed America? We may not be perfect. We're not perfect. But God has been incredibly, ridiculously good to us. And not just not just monetarily. I mean, think about it. You have a vaccine in your blood, most likely. You have a vaccine for a disease that crippled a president less than a century ago. That's incredible. You can make it hot when it's cold. You can make it cold when it's hot with the flick of a button. And your car has better amenities than most people's houses had 30 years ago. That's an incredible thing. And not only should we be thankful for where we were born, but based on what I just said, we should be thankful for when we were born. You know, all, all through growing up, people told me I was born in the wrong generation because, you know, I, I love black and white movies. I just love old movies. And when I say old movies, I don't mean movies that were made in the 80s. I mean old movies that were made in, like, the 30s and the 40s. Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, the good old movies. Right, I'm partial to barbershop quartet style music, big band music, the Rat Pack. You know, and sometimes I used to look at pictures or I'd watch movies that don't have the filth that many of today's films have, and I think, man, what it must have been like to be alive then. Imagine how good life was then. Or even not that far back. It's so easy. You know, I had a, a fairly significant car repair last week I had to pay for. And it's easy in those moments to think, boy, wasn't it great being a kid? Wasn't it great before you had to pay bills? Wasn't it great before there was all this political garbage and worldwide terror that exists now that I'm an adult? You know, it's so easy to think that. But apparently, it just so happened that I was on vacation the same time as Glenn Beck. And, you know, I I guess great minds think alike, but he was apparently thinking about these same kind of things. And he posted uh, on Facebook while I was on vacation. This is one of the things that I did actually remember. And his post was just so good. It perfectly summarized so much of what I was thinking about, and the conclusion that I reached. I just want to read it to you. This is uh, from Glenn Beck's Facebook page on June 1st. 
He said, sometimes you think that things were simpler when you were a kid. Maybe when we hear an old song on the radio, it brings us back to a time when the greens and blues are are remembered the week before summer vacation, new school clothes and new pencils in the fall, friends playing until dusk and the slam of the front porch screen door as you are running to join them, your first kiss, your first love, summer. As I'm on vacation with my family this week, I thought about this. The days gone by really aren't simpler or better. It is just that we were kids, and if our parents were doing their job, they protected us from all of the scary things out in the world, just as we do now. Cheyenne, his daughter, wanted to read the news to me tonight. I asked her not to. She wondered why. My answer was less than 100% true. I said, because Daddy sees it every day and nothing really changes. I will see it when we get home. The rest of the truth was simple. I didn't want her to see what was happening all around the world. As crazy as the world is, and as hard as it might be for us to believe, our children will remember this summer as one of their best summers ever. And he shared a picture of him and his collie prince in a place called Birch Bay. It is a little town on the water just about 40 miles from our house. We rented a little cabin a few blocks from the beach. It was a rare vacation in the summer of 1970. We didn't have a lot of money. My dad's business was failing. War, riots, weather underground, Nixon and Watergate was on the way. Things weren't simpler then. I was merely a child, and I thought of childish things. For that one week in the summer of 1970, that was my ship, and it took me to far-off islands and adventures. All week I saw the world, fought pirates, and sailed the seven seas. Just a boy and his dog. Just as it should be. It wasn't that things were simpler or that they were better. It's just that your perspective was different. Don't forget how much God has blessed you right now. Just look around and say thank you. Today's programming is brought to you by Krispy Kreme Donuts Fundraising Opportunities. Krispy Kreme fundraisers are available year-round. They can take place over one to two days or one to two weeks. If your educational, religious, community, or charitable cause is looking for a fun way to meet your financial goals, Krispy Kreme can help with that. Krispy Kreme provides free fundraising materials for your use. You can visit KrispyKreme.com slash fundraising or your local Krispy Kreme to learn more. Our thanks to Krispy Kreme for their support of KVXL programming. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to play One Thing Remains from David Wesley, who's quickly becoming a fan favorite here at the show. Uh, he, You can find his work on iTunes and YouTube. He does almost solely acapella. Some of his stuff he uses instruments, but he does it all himself. Plays all the instruments, makes all the voices. It's pretty cool. So this is David Wesley with One Thing Remains. Don't go away. We'll be back in just a minute. And welcome back. You're listening to The Frittle Show on KVXLLP 101.1 FM. That was David Wesley with One Thing Remains. You know, people ask, why do you take breaks and play music? Well, a couple reasons. Actually, I think three or four I can think of. One, we're a non-commercial station, so we don't play commercials. So normally if you're listening to a talk show, you get interrupted with commercials. We don't play commercials. But there's still a need for breaks. Therefore we play wonderful, cool music that Crystal really likes. Which leads to point number two, being that taking a music break gives me an excuse to sit here with my cool headphones, turn off my microphone, and, you know, sing along. Because, honestly, if you want to try it sometime, if you sit with a little soundboard and microphone and you sing along, just as long as the microphone is actually turned off, it's really kind of fun and cool. 
That's just a good way to, to take a break and recollect your thoughts. Number three, opportunity to take a drink of water. Because if I randomly stop in the middle of a, a dialogue and drink water, then you're all going to make fun of me like I'm Marco Rubio, and I'm trying to avoid that, if at all possible. And number four, sometimes you have emergency situations, like the one that just happened, wherein the studio was approximately 85 degrees the entire last segment because I had forgotten to uh, set the air conditioning properly. Which is, again, one of the reasons why I am so grateful and blessed to be an American living in America with air conditioning, particularly since it's Las Vegas and it's getting hot. So apparently I said most greatest country in the last segment. My apologies to all of you English teachers listening that, uh, that found that to be offensive to your ears. I usually, if you know me, would never say such thing in such a poor fashion. But sometimes my brain is, is moving so quickly and my mouth is trying to keep up things happen that, you know, the, the grammar just isn't there. So apologies to those of you that, that didn't appreciate that. But I thank you for listening. And I thank you for letting me know that I said such a thing because then it makes me very self-conscious of everything that I'm saying. And that's always a good thing when you're on the radio, right? <laughs> oh, so let's talk about this gorilla that was killed. We need to hash out some bullet points here and then I'll tell you what I really think about it. Okay, ready? No, the child should not have been in the enclosure. Yes, parents should have had better control of their child. However... If you've ever actually interacted with children at all, you understand that sometimes even the best parenting or babysitting or teaching won't stop little Johnny from doing exactly what he wants to do, no matter how stupid his idea might be. Secondly, we want, and in many times demand, that zoos be as true to nature as possible. Well, we can't have it both ways. Either the animals go into a steel cage, or there will always be an inherent element of great risk when you are near wild animals. I mean, seriously, have you even seen Madagascar? I bought Zookeeper. Night at the museum? Work with me here, people. Wild animals, even in captivity, they are still wild. Hence the name, wild animals. Third, the gorilla was dragging the kid. There were only two possible ways this scenario was going to end. One, either the gorilla injures or kills the child, in which case, guess what? The gorilla would be killed. Or, two, the gorilla is killed prior to it being able to injure or kill the child, and the child lives. In either scenario, the gorilla is going to die. That's what I think everyone needs to just take a step back and realize. No matter what happened, the gorilla is going to die. Because it is not in the inherent nature of gorillas to dwell peaceably alongside small children. But in only one of these scenarios does the child come away unharmed. But in both, the gorilla dies. So bottom line, given the choice between a gorilla and a child, the child is always the right choice. And that seems simple enough, right? I mean, wrong. It's not that simple. Here's why. We live in a world where we campaign to save baby whales, but we sell human baby parts for profit. We live in a world where there's no longer, you know, certain definitions about the obvious physiological differences between men and women. 
We live in a world where, and I'm not even joking about this, I saw this story last week, there are men who are now self-identifying as dogs, dressing in dog costumes, and living as beasts. Not a joke. We have dehumanized humanity. We've reached a point where we no longer value human life over animal life, or even plant life in some cases. And why? Well, quite frankly, because we rejected the book of Genesis, particularly the first few chapters, in favor of a man with a crazy theory about how nothing exploded and created all the things which were actually nothing until they somehow morphed into something else. That was also really nothing until that morphed into something else, which became something. And if his theory be true, then mankind is simply really a different version of an ape, and therefore of no more worth in actuality than an animal. But that's not how it works. That's not how any of this works, to borrow the great commercial line. Only mankind was created in God's image. It was only man that God breathed life into. It is only man that is comprised of body, soul, and spirit. But when you reject Genesis 1 and people say, well, you don't need to, creation, it doesn't work. No, it does work. Because God did it and God said it. And if you get rid of Genesis and you say, well, we're just going to live in the New Testament. This is the good stuff. That stuff all didn't matter. No, it does matter. If you get rid of Genesis... Then you have things like this where we don't, if you want to put, figure out why human life is important, you need Genesis. You don't have to like that, but please explain to me, without Genesis, why mankind is of any more importance than animal or plant life. Try. Try. I mean, if really, if we have all just evolved, and I'm just, you know, a more evolved version of of the ape, then why is my life more valuable than his? You know, a dear friend of mine grew up as a missionary kid in Kenya, and she actually worked with gorillas. And she posted this on Facebook about the gorilla situation. She said, In relation to the recent sad news story of the zoo gorilla being shot in order to save the life of a little boy who fell into the cage, I have read way too many outraged comments about the injustice of shooting the gorilla and how the little boy or the mother should have been shot instead. I spent countless hours personally tracking and studying gorilla clans with professional zoologists during my years in Africa. We learned to communicate with them, to build trust, and learn their habits. They were so close to me that I could have reached out to touch them. In fact, I personally rescued a dying gorilla who I discovered while hiking behind my house. But, I have spent an infinitely more amount of time with people. Some have done profound acts that have saved my life and the lives of my loved ones. Many have taught me how to live and serve others. Myriads have fought and died to make our world a better place. Some have discovered cures for deadly diseases. No gorilla has ever done that. I think the zoo officials made the right choice to save the little boy. He may be the one who will do something great for mankind. He may cure cancer. He may become president. 
Hime solve world problems. Something the gorilla, because he is a gorilla, could never do. I'm so sorry the gorilla had to be shot, but I am more grateful that a human life was saved. There is no comparison. And that's exactly it. But if we equate mankind with nothing more than a more evolved creature, then we dehumanize and devalue human life. And it just comes down to a very simple fact that if you're choosing between an animal and a child or any person, the child is always the right choice. Because only the child is made in God's image and is capable of making the world a better place. Animals don't do that. I mean, I love my dog, but she barks at strangers, which is fantastic, and I appreciate that. And she makes me feel good, and I appreciate that. But she can't babysit your kids for you. She can't come up with a cure for cancer. She doesn't even know that one plus one is two. Although sometimes when I'm giving her treats, I do wonder about that. Because she's an animal. She's not going to put a man on the moon. She can't build a spaceship. Because she's an animal. She can't tell you about Jesus. She can't tell you how to go to heaven. Because she's an animal. She's fantastic and I love her. But she's an animal. And if you have to choose between an animal and a person, the person is always the right choice. Always. And the right choice, though, it isn't always easy. In fact, sometimes it's very hard. And I, I hope you saw this story about the right choice that was made by this hero, Marine Captain Jeff Coos, last week. I mean, this guy is a hero. How many stories have you seen about the gorilla? Like five bazillion? How many stories have you seen about Captain Coos and who he was in his life? Captain Coos was the Blue Angel pilot uh, who crashed and, and died last week. But he purposefully did not eject from his plane so that he wouldn't crash into an, in a, into an apartment complex. If he had ejected, he knew that his plane would most likely kill and injure dozens of people. So he chose, rather than eject and save his own life, to go down with his plane to save the lives of others. This is from AmericanMilitaryNews.com. A Navy Blue Angel pilot died reportedly maneuvering his aircraft, or aircraft away from an apartment building before it crashed. Pilot Marine Captain Jeff Coos died Thursday afternoon near Smyrna Airport in Tennessee during practice training for the upcoming Great Tennessee Air, Air Show, as reported by the Associated Press. Reportedly, in order to prevent his aircraft from hitting into an apartment building, Coos purposefully did not eject so that he could maneuver the aircraft away from the building. American Military News also spoke with several military advisors who also reinforced that if there was any danger of the plane hitting civilians, the aviator is to stay with the plane to avoid any innocent loss of life. That is a hero, folks. Smyrna residents held a candlelight vigil to honor husband and father of two, Captain Jeffrey Coos, on Thursday. Dick Wallstad, the organizer of the air show in Fargo, North Dakota, who has had the Blue Angels perform at his events, also said that Captain Coos is probably 
uh, a hero in his death. It's a populated area with a bunch of kids, he said, which is why the captain did not eject to prevent further casualties. He was a hero. Coos was married and has two children. Now explain to me again why we're talking about a gorilla who was killed to save the life of a child when you have a Blue Angel pilot who rather than eject and save himself chose to go down with his plane to save the lives of others. That's a hero. That's who we should be talking about. We should be talking about his family. We should be learning about him. Learning who he was. Remembering his life. Because he saved the lives of others. And that's something the gorilla could never do. We're going to take another break. We're going to play uh, From the Inside Out from Hillsong. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Did you know that today is the 72nd anniversary of D-Day? And I'm going to tell you a little D-Day story when we get back. Don't go away. This is From the Inside Out from Hillsong. Guitar strumming there at the end of that song. That was Hillsong Acoustic with From the Inside Out. Today is the 72nd anniversary of D-Day. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. We will accept nothing less than full victory, was a message from General Dwight D. Eisenhower to U.S. troops before they departed on Operation Overlord, which has become known, of course, as the D-Day landings. This is from the Constitution Center. On June 6, 1944, about 150,000 troops stormed the beaches of France in the epic D-Day invasion that proved pivotal to the Allied war effort. But how did the idea originate, and how did the Allies pull off such a huge task? The numbers involved in the Normandy landings are still staggering today and unlikely to be seen again in a modern age of combat. Here are a few of the numbers and some fascinating facts about the historic event for you today. What does the name D-Day mean? Do you know? It's actually still debated. No one knows what D-Day means, since the operation was cloaked in secrecy. One prominent theory is that the word D-Day originated in a World War I tradition of assigning generic words like D-Day and H-Hour to events with unassigned dates. So, the D would stand for departed or departed date because they don't know what date it's actually going to happen, just that that's the day. The D-Day attack consisted of more than 150,000 personnel crossing the English Channel by sea and air, and about 100,000 troops were involved in the invasion on June 6th. Of the 100,000 or so fighters in the invading force, about 9,000 men were killed or wounded on June 6th, 1944. 9,000 men. Throughout history, attacks over water were a feature of many wars and campaigns, but not on the scale of the D-Day invasion. The the Spanish Armada in 1588 that failed to invade England had about 130 ships and a potential of 55,000 fighters. The D-Day force had 5,000 vessels. Wow. Ah... How did D-Day happen on June 6th? Well, since everyone knew an invasion of some type was imminent, weather and timing played prominent roles. General Dwight D. Eisenhower picked June 5th, 1944 as the date for the invasion, but bad weather forced a postponement. After meteorologists told Eisenhower that the weather would be clear the next day, the invasion was on. But in reality, the weather was nearly as bad on June 6th. Winston Churchill is believed to be the person who assigned the code name to the D-Day invasion of Operation Overlord since he had a very high interest 
in selecting code names. The Germans actually were the ones who pioneered the use of code names in World War One. Kind of an interesting fun fact there. Eisenhower's message to the troops. On the day of the invasion, where the eyes of the world are upon you. I was homeschooled throughout uh, most of my childhood. Every year on D-Day, my dad would have us watch The Longest Day. It's a G-rated movie that was made in 1962. It's three hours long, and it's pretty extensive. It covers most of the, the battles that were happening. It goes to each of the beachheads. Uh, so with the airborne, um, it's really, uh, if you are looking for something to help you understand more about this day, it's, it's a, I would think it's worth your time. It's called The Longest Day. It stars John Wayne, Robert Mitchum, uh, a lot of really big names actually in this movie from 1962. It's called The Longest Day, and it's just, it's, it's D-Day. It walks you through what happened with D-Day, from the weather to the landings to the 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 paratroopers. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for, for small children because obviously it is about uh, a, a day where 9,000 men lost their lives and they don't sugarcoat it. I mean, obviously it's not as graphic as our films are today because it was made in 1962, but there are still you know, people being killed and, and things of that nature. But it is a good film if you're looking for a way to, to remember what happened today, the longest day. Um, but here's an untold story. Of D-Day. This is from National Geographic. Early in the war, Allied planners realized the value of scouts for going ahead and looking out enemy-held beaches. From this need, the group called Scouts and Raiders were born. Originally a joint Navy-Army unit, by 1944, the outfit was all-Navy and all-volunteer. Scouts and Raiders were trained in long-distance swimming, small boat handling, and the use of weapons and explosives. They used rubber boats and a type of kayak-like craft called a full boat to sneak onto the shore without being seen. In the weeks just prior to D-Day, Scouts and Raiders visited many Normandy beaches, checking on such things as the type of sand to see if it would hold up under a tank, as well as the placement of steel obstacles and teller mines on wooden poles. They also verified water depths and the speed of currents, then slipped back to sea, sometimes swimming miles to their moored full boats before paddling quietly and swiftly to waiting motorboats for a return to their base in England. The scouts and raiders trained closely with other special teams, such as the Naval Combat Demolition Units, which NCDUs, whose specialty was demolition of beach obstacles, welded steel hedgehogs, Belgian gates, and other impediments to landing craft. The Navy recruited civilian experts from coal mines and quarries to train the NDCU teams in handling of explosives. As landing craft approached Utah and Omaha beaches on June 6, 1944, they were guided by scouts and raiders in several LLC boats. One of the boat captains off Omaha Beach was Lieutenant Phil Bucklew, who saw that sea conditions were too dangerous for launching the amphibious duplex drive tanks from landing craft several miles at sea. Unfortunately, his radio report was ignored and most of the DD tanks that were launched toward Omaha Beach sank, some taking crewmen to the floor of the shallow but deadly Bay of the Sign. Other scouts and raiders teams were close to the beaches in LCS boats, armed with twin 50 caliber machine guns, 30 caliber machine guns, and rockets mounted in racks. Their job was to give covering fire for landing craft as they approached the, be the beaches. 
In the water near the tide line on Omaha Beach, NCD used work with Army teams from the 146th and 299th Engineer Combat Battalions, placing charges against steel obstacles and blasting eight clearings through to the beach. They had trained together before the invasion and were combined for this operation to form part of the Special Engineer Task Force, arriving on the beach five minutes after the first landing craft came to shore. The NCDUs accomplished their task at a heavy cost to themselves and were sometimes hampered by soldiers who tried to use the obstacles as a shelter while under heavy fire from German machine guns. The NCDUs on Omaha Beach lost 31 men and suffered suffered 60 wounded out of a total of 180 men. They later received a presidential unit citation. On Utah Beach, where the firefight was much less intense than on Omaha Beach, the NCDUs lost only six men and 11 were wounded. There, Navy teams worked with Army demolition men from the 237th and 299th Engineer Combat Battalions and cleared the beach of all steel and concrete obstacles. By day's end, they could claim 1,600 yards of cleared beach available for safe landing. It was an invaluable accomplishment, allowing the Navy to unload 20,000 troops and 1,700 vehicles onto Utah Beach by the end of the day. The Navy's use of scouts and raiders, the NCDUs, and other special operations units groups, including underwater demolition teams in World War II, eventually led to the creation of a dedicated unit that handles many secret tasks that involve the sea and land. We call them the SEALs for sea, air, and land, and they are one of the elite forces in the United States military today. As their command historian Don Crawford says, they are busier than ever answering 911 calls from around the globe. And now you know that the scouts and raiders, which eventually would form the SEALs, began in World War II. It's kind of a, an interesting fact. I never knew that until today when I was looking at um, information on, on D-Day. Don't forget the sacrifices that have been made. You know, Remember in the first segment, I was talking all about how blessed we are here in the United States? Uh, those blessings, they haven't come free. They've been procured on the backs and by the blood of patriots. If you see a veteran anywhere, today, next week, next year, say thank you. If you see someone who's currently serving, say thank you. They deserve our thanks. All right, so uh, just a reminder, if you are headed, if you are in Las Vegas and you are headed downtown this week... Uh, today, you will start paying for parking at MGM Resort Properties. Uh, if you're a local, you don't have to start paying until, I believe it's Christmas Eve. No, December 29th, so the end of December, you can park for free. But anyone that is not carrying a valid Nevada driver's license cannot any longer park for free at the New York, New York, the Bellagio, the Aria, the Vidara, and the Monte Carlo. They will soon also be charging for parking at the Luxor and Circus Circus and the Mirage by the end of this week. Okay, so all of those. Oh, and then in uh, next week? Yeah, next week, Mandalay Bay and the Delano will also have parking fees. So essentially, all the MGM resorts are going to pay, you're going to pay for parking. I believe it's $10 per day. Unless you have a valid Nevada driver's license, then you can actually scan that at the parking meter's and uh, and you can park for free there through the end of this year. Or, of course, you know, you can always park. MGM is the only resort downtown that is uh, that is actually charging for parking. So you can always park somewhere else. 
there's you know, a lot of options if you're headed down to the strip with, you know, to watch the fountains or whatever. That's the only thing that bums me out because I would always park at the Bellagio because the only time I really go downtown is if I have a meeting or if I have family and friends in town that want to go downtown. And then I have a very specific family-friendly route that we take and we see very specific things and then we leave. And I'd always park at the Bellagio, watch the fountains before we embark on our little sojourn and then come back, watch the fountains and go. So that's not uh, that's not cool, MGM. I vote no <laughs> to more fees, but you know, you can always find a new place to park. That's all the time we have left for today. Later this week, we'll have uh, we have Eric Metaxas. He's fantastic. If you've ever read Bonhoeffer or Seven Men, Seven Women, really good. I'm so excited to be having him on the show. He's actually uh, we're going to start airing his weekend. The weekend edition of his show on Saturdays. I forget what time. I think it's at 5 p.m. maybe on Saturdays. We'll be airing his show. And then uh, we'll also have the Benham Brothers. Their new book is coming out. It's called Living, um, I think, Life Among Lions? Living Among Lions? I've got it written down somewhere. But they're going to be on later this week as well. So be sure to tune in every morning. We're here at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks to those of you listening on the 405media.com as well. It's great to have you here. And if you miss a show, you can always catch it on SoundCloud. Just type in, you can Google SoundCloud, The Frittle Show, or just The Frittle Show. You can listen to podcast editions of the show. We put up two or three podcasts uh, a week for you there. And hopefully soon, you know, iTunes, working with iTunes is kind of like trying to carve out a rock with a toothpick. But hopefully soon, we will also be available on iTunes. That's all the time we have left for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a fantastic and uh, you know whatever you're doing with the rest of your day i hope it's great this is chris tomlin with greater we'll see you back here tomorrow adios everyone